Know Your Food with Wardy, episode 118. For links and more, visit the show notes at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 118. Hey everyone, welcome to Know Your Food with Wardy. I'm Wardy in Southwest Oregon, a traditional food blogger at ganalfglins.com and knowyourfoodpodcast.com. I'm glad you're here. This is the podcast where we're all about ditching those poisonous processed foods, breaking free from the conventional food paradigm, and instead embracing whole foods raised, saved, and prepared with traditional methods. It's fun, it's delicious, and it's healthy. You're on your way to looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good. Going to get into the tip of the week here in just a moment. First, I want to make an announcement. If you haven't yet listened to my podcast 114 on a healing sleep that you can get from the right bed, you want to go back and listen to that because there's some timely information in there. And that's knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 114. I spoke with the co-founder of IntelliBed, and IntelliBed is the bed that we've been sleeping on um, throughout 2015, and it is so wonderful. It's non-toxic and it's healing. And we went into depth on that. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because if you're at all interested, then through the 21st of June is when you can get $600 worth of free bedding and pillow with your order of a bed. So you want to go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 114 for all the details. Or if you want to go straight to the bed and request a consultation, just go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash bed. And it's a no-risk thing, so you can try their beds in-home for 60 days. So if it's on your radar at all, you want to snap it up now when you can get the free bedding. And, you know, the sheets and the pillows are wonderful. Um, They're like icing on top of the cake, right? (laughs) If the bed was a cake, the bedding and the pillows make it even sweeter. Okay, so let's talk about the tip of the week. This is a tip on making sugar-free popsicles, and it comes from Kresha, who's a writer at Traditional Cooking School blog. She recently um, put up a post, put a post together for us, nine insanely refreshing popsicles that you and your kids will love. Uh, your kids will love them because they taste great. You will love them because they're also healthy, because the thing about summer is it's hot and there's a lot of fresh food available. So she put together nine recipes that are really nourishing um, Three examples, cucumber mint, watermelon basil, red raspberry and beet. Oh, and they're colorful and beautiful. So here's a link for you, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash popsicles. And I don't know if you know how to spell popsicles, but I always question, what is the spelling of popsicles? So I'll make it easy for you, P-O-P-S-I-C-L-E-S. So I want to tell you about that, but what I'm going to pull out here for the tip of the week is how to make sugar-free. Because here's the thing, popsicle recipes, including the nine here, a really good popsicle texture requires a sugar syrup. And we use, you know, unrefined sugar or honey to make a sugar syrup. But what if you need to be completely sugar-free? Well, here's the tip. So you can use this in any of these nine insanely refreshing popsicle recipes or if you've got a favorite recipe. So what you're going to do is, um, and this is for a popsicle that has, you know, herbs like, you know, mint tea or uh, basil or rosemary, but you're going to take the herb tea and you're going to steep the herbs in an equal portion of boiling water to the amount of sugar syrup called for in the recipe. So if it's one cup of sugar syrup, you're going to do one cup of water um, with your herbs. Um, So you steep it in boiling water and take it off the... um, 
off the boil, let it cool down all the way. You're going to, um, you know, strain it. And when that water is cool, you're going to do that. And then you just use that water in the recipe instead of a sugar syrup. And what this does is it allows you to make a popsicle like where just the fruit is the sweetness. Or maybe you're going to add stevia as a sweetness. Um, and it's going to be a little bit icier. It's not going to have the same texture as a, as a syrup-based popsicle. But it will allow you to... Um, Enjoy the benefits of this beautiful, abundant time of year in cold treats on hot days without the sugar. For more information, just go to the post that has the nine insanely refreshing recipes plus these instructions that I just told you, and that's at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash popsicles, P-O-P-S-I-C-L-E-S. Let's take a quick break, and then I'll be back for an episode devoted just to listener questions. Hi, I'm Morty, a traditional cooking expert and food blogger at traditionalcookingschool.com. For years, my family struggled with food-related health problems like eczema and food allergies, but we don't anymore. And I'd love to show you that preparing whole foods with traditional methods is easy, delicious, and super good for you too. So just go to traditionalcookingschool.com free, and I'll show you how easily you can do it too. I'll give you five free videos that include my favorite traditional cooking techniques, plus printable at-a-glance fact sheets as a handy reference. So if you're ready to start looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good, then visit traditionalcookingschool.com free today. I've been gathering up your questions, and since we have a break in between um, guests, I figured it was time to have a an episode devoted to listener questions. We have some good ones today. So the first question is from Caitlin D. She says, I regularly make fermented vegetables for my family. I know it's supposed to stay beneath the brine to inhibit mold growth. Generally, I'm able to keep it, and we're talking about the vegetable mixture, beneath the brine while it's fermenting. However, the problem is later when I move it to the refrigerator to eat, the brine disappears. Is it all right if it's not beneath the brine, if it's already in the refrigerator? Okay, well, Caitlin, you know, a lot of times it will turn out all right. However, at the very top, it can get dried out and it can even spoil. So it's better to have it under the brine. And here's an easy solution to that. Just mix up a little bit of salt water, like um, a cup of water with half to one teaspoon of salt and just stir it till it's dissolved. And then add that into the jar right in the fridge to... Um, Bring that, that liquid level back up to where it should be so your vegetables are submerged. Or another alternative is even though you've got a full jar in there and you're like, where did the brine go? By the time you get to the bottom, you might have like a half a cup of brine that just settled. And then you've eaten all the vegetables and you've got this sauerkraut juice or this pickle juice. Well, save that and you can use that to top off your next jar of fermented vegetables that suddenly the brine disappears in the fridge. I'm not sure why that happens. It could be... You know, it's out at room temperature and the organisms are really going, so there's a lot of lift, and so it's a really bubbly mixture that's kind of like, you know, raised up a bit in level, and then you put it in the fridge and the, or the activity slows down, and so it all just settles down. That could be part of it. In, in either case, um, whatever the reason, just go ahead and top it off, and then you've got a really good ferment going in your fridge where the vegetables are going to stay crisp and not dry out, and then you won't have a risk of it going bad. Thanks for your question, Caitlin. Next question is from Jessica H. Hi, Wardy. 
Thanks so much for sharing your traditional food wisdom. I have been a member of your traditional cooking school for over a year now and am convinced of the benefit of traditional cooking. I enjoy learning about the healing power that proper food can have on our bodies, and I'm always trying to learn and grow in this area. I have a question regarding the Whole30 program and then the paleo lifestyle that the Whole30 segues into. There are several aspects of the Whole30 program that I like, like emphasis on fresh fruit, veggies, and grass-fed meat. Yet there are some that don't sit well with me, like the exclusion of raw dairy, which I believe to be healing. I'm also curious about the exclusion of beans, legumes, and grains. If beans, legumes, and grains are properly prepared, are they harmful? Do they still cause immune system responses? I've been wrestling with this information for a while and just can't seem to come to peace on the matter. I'm curious to hear your opinion. Thanks and keep up the great work. This is a really good question. Um, and I'll tell you just my thoughts on it. So, and this is not being familiar with the Whole30 program other than I know about it and I've seen people do it and I've seen people have great success and rave about it. And I'm also familiar with paleo. I have just not practiced either one of them. Um, However, we have excluded raw dairy and we have excluded um, grains, beans, and legumes at times. And the reason that these are beneficial at times is because they have sugar. Um, So, you know, dairy has milk sugar and the grains, beans, and legumes have um, carbohydrate sugar. And for someone whose gut is off balance or somebody who's, well, it's the same thing. People on the standard American diet probably, you know, without exclusion, (laughs) have off-balance gut health because of all the white flour and high starch and sugar. Um, And so even milk sugar and the starches in grains, beans, and beans are legumes, those can contribute to off-balance gut health because those starches and those sugars are the ones that feed the undesirable organisms in the gut. And that's why when somebody goes on a Whole30 or a paleo diet, they um, experience so much Um, restored health is because the process of restricting those foods means they're depriving the undesirable organisms in the gut of what they would feast on and so improved digestion and improved elimination and better energy and I mean maybe there's a detox period but in general their their health is going to swing in the right direction. Um, So yes, I think there can be an incredible benefit to that. Does it mean everybody needs to do that? Does it mean that's the only way to restore gut health? No, there's a slower, more methodical approach with just a switch to a traditional food diet. If someone's really bad off though, I can see a great benefit. And that's why um, like the GAPS diet in particular that we talk about often is pretty similar to the Whole30 and the um, paleo approach because whether it's, you know, Whichever one of those you choose, the end is a restored gut health. Now, I want to address kind of um, like the fact that whole, at least Whole30, you know, the exclusion of dairy. Well, I doubt very much that the Whole30 diet, I don't know this for sure, so I, maybe I shouldn't even be saying it, but I think probably the Whole30 exclusion of dairy isn't about raw dairy, it's about dairy. Um, and so it's addressing the lactose and the milk sugar and people that are unhealthy, you know, that's not going to do them any good, especially if it's, or if it's conventional dairy, it's not going to do them any good. So I feel like whole 30 and the whole reason it came out and all that is a response to the standard American diet where milk is unhealthy. It not only has the milk sugar, 
But the cows were on a feedlot, so they're corn-fed, soy-fed, so the milk is not a good food because the cow's diet wasn't good, so especially the fatty acid profile has totally shifted for the worse. Um, it's also pasteurized, and it's homogenized, and it's most likely low-fat. So um, is it good for people to go off that kind of milk? Yes. And, and I don't even really think going off dairy for a month, even if it's raw dairy, to see how you feel is, a, is an idea, you know, that's, that you should discard. I mean, maybe it would help you. Even a person like me um, who was eating traditional foods for a while, but still I wanted to heal my seasonal allergies, so I went on gaps and I excluded all forms of sugar like we're talking about. And I experienced a complete reversal in my seasonal allergies because I really healed during that time. And now I've gone back to fermented dairy. Um, another approach you could take if you're interested in the what you mentioned, you know, the fresh fruits and vegetables, the grass-fed dairy, is to do Whole30 but kind of modify it. Um, do fermented dairy or do some real raw dairy. Don't do conventional dairy, which it sounds like you're not doing. Um, so overall... I don't think that Whole30 or Paleo are wrong. I don't think that they're necessarily right. I think it depends on the person. And if the person is coming off the standard American diet, they, these, these approaches can be very helpful. Um, if a person needs gut healing, it can be very helpful. I think it also can be modified. So don't feel like you have to accept the whole thing if you want to accept a little bit of it. So I hope that was helpful, and if you have additional comments, uh, the show notes are at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 118. And our remaining questions are about milk as well, so here is a question from Kathy G. Hope you're enjoying your summer. I was wondering if I could get your take on drinking raw milk versus not drinking milk, and this is related to Jessica's question. I've heard several people talk about this topic, and they're usually saying a lot of the same reasons. One article in particular is by... Mark Hyman, six reasons why we should not be drinking milk. My husband always says to me that he would never stop drinking milk because in the Bible it says we're to eat and drink from our land that is flowing with milk and honey. I'd love to get some insight on this topic. It can be so confusing on what to do and what not to do. Thank you. Well, Kathy, I believe I've seen that article um, maybe like a year ago. And I'm going to lump it in there, hopefully not incorrectly, with a lot of articles that are out there on the web. And the problem with them is they never specify which type of milk we shouldn't drink. They're like, just like I'm lumping them all together, well, they just lump all of milk together and say, milk is poison, you shouldn't drink it. Well, if they did specify, you know, the things that we know, like conventional milk from real raw milk, I personally would listen more to them. But the fact that they don't means, makes me think that they're just talking about the same milk that everybody talks about, and they don't really know what we know, which is there's a difference between conventional milk and real raw milk. And the stuff that everybody else is talking about in all those articles that say milk is bad, they're talking about grocery store milk from feedlot animals that's pasteurized and homogenized and probably lower fat. Well, that milk is poison, and we should avoid it. So I agree with them. Um, some of the reasons, and I, uh, I don't remember exactly what this guy Mark said, but I'm just recalling general reasons I've read. So they say people are lactose intolerant. Well, real raw milk contains lactase, lactase, the enzyme required to digest milk. And if you ferment milk, like make yogurt or kefir, you get more lactase to help you 
digested even better, and the lactose has been naturally reduced because the organisms have consumed it. Well, that is not the case with conventional dairy. It has lactose, unless it's been, you know, chemically or whatever. However, they make lactose-free milk, which is not natural. So anyway, the, the conventional milk has lactose and no lactase to help you digest it. Well, it's no wonder people are lactose intolerant. How are you supposed to digest lactose without lactase? Well, the way God made milk is that it comes with the lactase. Um, so another argument they say is, um, like, um, the protein gives people trouble. Like, they have an allergy to the protein. And I am not discounting that at all. I'm just going to throw out there that when you pasteurize milk, it denatures proteins. So maybe all the problems that people have with milk protein are a result of the processing of milk. Maybe somebody who can't have um, conventional dairy could have real raw milk. Maybe the casein wouldn't be a problem. I'm just throwing this out there as a logical argument. Um, Another thing. They say, the fat is bad for you. Well, as I mentioned before in answer to Jessica, if the cow was on a feedlot and was fed corn, it is bad for you. Because a, cor- a, a cow that's fed corn, or well, particularly corn, but soy isn't good anyway, um, changes the fatty acid profile. So the right way to have your omega-6 to omega-3 is, I believe, 4 to 1. Um, so, or, or in that range. Well, if a cow is fed corn, it shifts to like 40 to 1. So 40 omega-6s to every 1 omega-3. So it's way off balance. And we know through other research that when it's off balance like that, that's what's implicated in all these serious diseases that our society faces. Whereas the God-given balance of 4 to 1, you know, the incidence of disease um, is not implicated by that proper natural range. So is the fat really the problem, or is it really the fact that it's the wrong fatty, the wrong fat profile due to the conventional animal's feedlot diet? Um, Another argument about the fat issue is if the milk's homogenized, that means the fat molecules were changed in order to make them the same size as the rest of the molecules in the milk so that the fat doesn't rise to the top. Well, that doesn't sound natural either, does it? And I'm just thinking logically. I'm not even like diving into the research to say this does this, this, and this. Just thinking, natu- just thinking logically. So maybe it's okay, maybe it's not. But the point is, the reason they do it is... Um, you know, for the bottom line of all the producers. They're not doing it for our health because there's nothing wrong with the cream rising to the top. It just may hurt it, though. So all these people that come out with these arguments against drinking milk are not making an argument against real raw milk. It sounds to me like they're making arguments against conventional milk, and I'm not convinced that their arguments apply to real raw milk because so far they don't. There was an article I saw several months ago by a fitness guy, and I wish I could remember where it was, and if I do remember by the time this podcast goes up, I'll give you a link. Right now, I'll just try to summarize it. And it's funny because the art, the title of the article, he said something like, you know, I don't know, 10 things I don't eat. Or, or it might have even been clearly about milk, like why you shouldn't drink milk. But he was different from all these other articles because he actually wrote a good one. He said, don't drink milk unless 
you're drinking real raw milk. So he actually knew the difference and he could make the argument that conventional milk is poison and real raw milk is not. And for me, that means a person's worth listening to if they're talking my language and if they're making the distinctions that are important to me and not just me, but you know, distinctions in food. It is a fact that conventional milk is different from the milk that comes out of the cow. And if somebody is just lumping them all together and saying they're bad, but not addressing the elephant in the room, then their argument doesn't convince me. Um, so just to come back and agree with your husband <laughs> and you, it sounds like, milk, real milk is a wonderful food, wonderful food and it's a gift of God. And it represents bounty and plenty. I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Keeping keeping a family cow and you know I read it because we had a milk cow at one point and it was very informative about milking and health and all that so if you haven't kept a family cow it may not have been on your radar but at the very beginning of the book the author um, went through some history about milk cows and she pointed out in the last couple hundred years and it's probably before that but she was even talking about you know recent recent times being a couple hundred years you know when when our country was being settled or people were coming across the ocean to settle the United States, one of the uh, factors that um, indicated whether a family was wealthy or not was whether or not they had a milk cow because a milk cow was, was expensive or required resources to keep healthy and people were willing to do that because of what the animal gave them in terms of food milk cheese butter so if you had a cow you were wealthy and that to me is the same kind of idea as what your your husband's pointing out with the verse in the bible and it resonates and i hope it does for you too um so you know that milk is gold and as long as you know we live in a fallen world and so many of us have poor gut health as i was speaking about earlier so maybe raw milk isn't an option because you need some gut healing to happen, but uh, taking out that consideration, raw milk is a wonderful, beautiful, um, miracle food, in my opinion. Thanks for your question, Kathy. Okay, our last two questions are from Henry, and they are about milk as well. So Henry says, the first one, I hear that folic acid, for example, in the milk is multiplied over 100% after some period of time, so culturing. So is there anything else that multiplies in milk, like minerals, vitamins, maybe protein somehow? It's a great question, Henry, and um, I'm just going to give you some general information that I know. So enzymes, and we're talking about milk being cultured. So enzymes in particular, particularly lactase in milk, are multiplied um, because they're produced by the organisms. And it's a wonderful thing, like I was talking about earlier. You ferment milk and you get lactase that helps you better digest it. You also get a reduction of lactose. So like people that are lactose intolerant often can do homemade yogurt or homemade kefir or even store-bought, I guess, uh, because the lactose is reduced. And if there's any lactose less left, there's lactase there to help digest it. Um, Another thing that increases are acids. These are, these are produced by the organisms. That's why if you let milk culture and sour long enough, um, it will curdle into curds and whey, and you haven't had to add rennet and because rennet will do it fast, make milk curdle into curds. Acid will do the same thing over time. Um, vitamins, you asked about vitamins. Well, other than folic acid, I looked up some information. All I could find was that vitamin increase 
is only slight other than folic acid. Folic acid is really where the magic is, although we know it's not magic, right? Um, minerals, I don't believe they increase, but they are more assimilable through culturing. And protein, no. I mean, the amount of protein is the amount of protein. That doesn't go up. Okay, so Henry, your next question. Kefir milk is separated into curds and whey. So is there probiotics in both and in what percentage? And the second part to that question, is curd a casein protein and whey a whey protein? Okay, the first part of that question. So yes, there are probiotics both in the curds and the whey. Uh, what percentage? I really don't know, and I can't answer that. They do both have a strong population, though, um, as evidenced by the fact that we can use the whey in fermentation. Or, you know, you add it to your soaking water with beans and rice, and then you can get a, a, fer a fermentation, like I would call it a biologically active soaking because it, it's introducing an element of fermentation. Um, about the protein content. So the curd... That's the milk coagulating, the white stuff, whether you're doing it with rennet or you're doing it with um, over time with acid. That curd is casein protein. Um, the whey protein is, is in the liquid, and it's, they don't, they're, they're, they're dissolved protein solids. They don't coagulate like the curd does. I mean, they will if you're making ricotta cheese. You can use heat or you can use the addition of acid to pull more. Pull the pro make those proteins coagulate into like a soft cheese, which that's ricotta. Um, so yes, that the protein in the whey is whey protein. But what I what I wanted to tell you was I looked it up on Wikipedia, uh, like the protein content of milk, and milk contains dozens of other types of proteins besides the caseins, including enzymes. So enzymes are proteins as well. The other proteins are more water soluble than the caseins and do not form larger structures. And those are the proteins that remain suspended in the whey left behind when the caseins coagulate into curds. So if you've made cheese, you know that you, you warm the milk to a certain temperature, you add your culture, you add your rennet, and at some point, you know, within an hour or two, you're cutting, they've, they've formed a curd, and you're cutting it into curds and then moving on with your cheese. Well, the liquid that's left behind is whey. And... In that way are proteins that remain suspend, suspended. They're the water-soluble proteins. We can, we can force them out, but you know they're in that liquid. And the caseins are the ones that coagulated into curds. And all the proteins that remain suspended in the whey are collectively known as whey proteins. Whey proteins make up approximately 20% of the protein in milk um, by weight. Um, so that's the answer to your question, Henry, and for anybody else, every, um, you know, I don't have a regular schedule, but every time we build up enough questions, I do it, or I have a break with interviews, I do a listener questions episode, so get them in. Send them to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash questions, actually that's the page, or you can send them to uh, contact at knowyourfoodpodcast.com. Either way, we'll get your questions and we'll put them in the queue, and I'm going to wrap up now. Um, we just by telling you to visit the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 118. And also a quick reminder, if you want to get in on that $600 worth of free bedding with the non-toxic and healing IntelliBed, the details are at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 114. Thanks for joining me, everyone. God bless you, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to see you again very soon. 
let me tell you what you can do next. You can visit the show notes for this episode. Just go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash, and then without a space, type the number of this episode. You'll get links and much more information about what we've been talking about. You can submit questions for future episodes. I love to answer your questions on the air, so go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash questions to submit them. You can stop by traditionalcookingschool.com to get five free traditional cooking videos from me. And finally, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, the podcast app, or Stitcher. If you're on a mobile device, just search for Know Your Food with Warty while you're in the app. If you're on a desktop or laptop, go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash iTunes right in your browser. And while you're there, please leave a rating or review. I love to read your comments and your feedback makes it much more likely that other people will find this podcast. Thank you so much.